Hey, I'm Josh Smith and welcome to Rain. And I'm so glad you're here, babes. This podcast is all about opening up, having important conversations and celebrating successes, as well as overcoming obstacles to reign over our own lives. I love to chat to people and I always find things in these conversations to take away and use in my own life. So I really hope you'll find the same as well. Welcome to Rain. Today, we are joined by the star of the new dramatization of the record-breaking computer game Halo, it's Olive Grey. Olive started their career at the age of 10 in the story of Tracy Beaker, which we all loved, right? Before starring in the BAFTA-nominated TV drama, Save Me. Now, after selling more than 82 million copies worldwide and grossing more than $6 billion, Halo's TV adaptation lands on Paramount Plus for Olive playing Commander Miranda Keys. Just a small job then. <laughs> Today, Olive talks about identity. From their racial identity to being part of the LGBTQIA community to their pronouns and having ADHD. This is such an inspirational chat about being true to yourself in a world that tells you to conform. So I hope you find the inspiration to be the person you are and want to be after listening to Olive, who is the representation we need to see. Now, crowns at the ready, let's ring. Hello, Olive. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing really good. It's a really beautiful day here, so I'm just enjoying looking out the window and absorbing all of that sun. I love that. Well, we are raring to go, and let's get into it. Halo. For those who haven't seen the first season yet, or also listening to this being like, what is even is Halo, the computer game? Mm. Give us, drop us that GCSE bite-sized version of WTF, what the fuck is going on in this show? <laughs> Do you know what? I think, I'm going to try my best, but I feel like I've somehow become so immersed in the world that every time I try to explain it, I'm like, this is way too much information. But (laughs) Halo essentially is uh, a sci-fi. It's set sometime in the future where um, Earth has a separate section just off of it called Reach, and that's kind of the base of the government and military and all of that. And from that, these soldiers have been made called Spartans. And Spartans, their job initially was to basically keep the other colonies, which is the other planets, in line. Um, It's a very kind of rigid and regimented structure. Um, But then there's also these aliens that are... Um, very slowly thrashing through planet to planet in order to find uh, these things called artefacts. And so we kind of start at that point and that's where season one begins, basically. Yes. I mean, we all just love a casual alien invasion situation. Yes. Just a little bit of extra drama in this sci-fi world. And it's such a huge project. And walk us through, how did it land in your lap? How did it come into your world? And what was the audition process like for you? So I remember getting the audition through uh, in 2019. I was filming a show called Save Me at the time. And um, it was it was really exciting for me because I, I knew about Halo through... Actually, I had dated someone who was super into gaming and so... I had kind of known about Halo through that relationship. 
Um, and it was just unlike anything I'd ever done. My kind of basis of acting is like kind of British drama. So this is just like, you know, very kind of British drama based in real things in, that would happen in everyday life. And this is just massive, big American alien sci-fi. So I, I was super excited for the concept of being able to do it. Um, and I went into the audition and I met Otto who directed the first block of season one and we just chatted. I think actually for most of the audition, we were just chatting. Uh, so I think we talked for like half an hour and then I read the scenes through and then I didn't hear anything back for like three months, I think it must have been. Maybe it wasn't that long, maybe two months, which is kind of not a thing within the world of, of filming. At that, at that point, usually you you audition for something and then you find out within a week or so. So it was, I kind of had imagined that it wasn't gonna happen. And mm. then kind of two months or three months down the line, I heard back that, um, that it was a go and it was just so exciting. And I think even looking back now, I definitely had no idea of what I was in for because it, it's such a, a big show. Uh, in terms of the scale of of every single part of it, of of the size of cast, of the sets, of the costumes, of the size of the aliens, of, of all of it, that I think that there was nothing that could really quite prepare me for that scale of show um, coming from, like I said, a kind of much more intimate um, British drama that I was on. So it was just, it was wonderful. Mm. What do you think that experience taught you about yourself and did you really have to step into your power on that set to have that self-belief to being this imaginary world knowing it's such a big project as well yeah it was it was you know it was so um it felt like such a different skill set had to be utilized on this job um I'd come from this show that was super overwhelming because I was it was a big BAFTA nominated show in the UK, but it was like British mm. drama. So it was in my head, that was kind of, I know that world to a certain extent. So it was nerve wracking because I felt like I was being given a massive responsibility, but I knew that world and I was like, wow, I've really tackled something and overcome something. And then to go to Halo, it was like, I had to learn a whole new different set of skills in order to manage in that world because it was just so different um I definitely feel like yeah you you do have to uh step into your power I guess um when you're on a set like that and to be able to be like um actually could we uh could we maybe try it like this when you're when, when you I'm so used to doing that on a more intimate set but to be able to do that on a set that's so big where you know it, it's nerve-wracking to to stand and be like actually I, I think I could we try going this direction in the scene um but it was such a good environment in that way that I did really feel like enabled and, and emboldened to do that um mm. But yeah, it was definitely a learning curve for me. Mm. And I guess as well, on top of that, you're also playing historically a white character as well. And that 
is such a groundbreaking aspect of the Halo universe and mm. what this show does. And you're also the only member of the principal cast who is part of the LGBTQIA plus community. So it, this yes. show does say a lot and your character does say a lot about how far we've come in terms of representation, but also how much further we still need to go. How did you feel taking on that role, knowing that aspect of the character too? And what do you think that says about where we've got to with representation on screen now? I think that there's like never too much or never enough representation in my opinion. I just think that like uh, diversifying every space to the point that diversity doesn't even mean anything anymore because there's no standard Mm. of uh, cis straight whiteness in order to like go against that, you know, because it's not the standard. I, I think that's always the goal but I do definitely think that we have come we've come so far and I'm, I'm proud to be a part of a show like Halo with the identity that I have I know that um, I mean I remember uh, the day that it was announced that I was going to be playing Miranda and at the time I had all of my Twitter notifications still on which I don't anymore but I was like oh my gosh I wonder what people are saying and of course, there were so many, so many people who were so excited and so encouraging and so positive, but there were also a lot of people who were frustrated and angry and confused why I had been cast in that role because of the fact that I'm not white. Um, mm. And I think as much as that didn't surprise me, I think that I realised, I think it was actually helpful for me to have it at a point where most of those people hadn't seen other things that I'd done because it made it so obvious to me that this was purely a thing that was about my race. And so for me, it was very Mm. easy to be like, well, this is not my problem. I can't change the person that I am and I can't change my racial identity and I, uh, I can only do the best that I can in order to uh, do this part justice. Um, But there was definitely another part of me. I think I have experienced um, things like that in the past, not even just in terms of uh, the public eye world, but even in terms of just like within my personal life. And there was definitely a part of me that felt... I'm, I, I feel secure enough and I feel strong enough within my support network and within myself that like if somebody's gonna get that like I'm, 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 I accept it to be me if that makes sense because I would rather receive that and then speak about it and hopefully do things to change it rather than somebody else who might not know that that will be coming their way and then suddenly go onto Twitter and that put them in an awful headspace. And it just, Mm. I think people, obviously, it's just the age old thing that we always say is that like, you have no idea the effect that your comment might have on somebody. But I am glad that I was able to see that and also still be okay. And I think as well, what's so powerful about the show and you've already slightly touched on this already, is that other people can see themselves seen and represented on screen, which is so 
important mm. for you personally when do you feel like you were you first felt seen and represented on screen do you know i'm not actually sure i think there have been like a number of things and i think that honestly i often feel so seen and represented by my peers more so than somebody who feels like further away from me if that makes any sense i think mm. when i see like one of my friends doing something and being themselves and just being open about the person that they are it really emboldens me to do the same um but i know this is going to sound cheesy but i do remember watching um the do you know the Beyonce Lemonade music video? Babe, of course. <laughs> of course, yeah. So I remember I remember watching that. And it's weird now I think about this because that doesn't feel like that long ago. And I just sometimes go, oh my gosh, what was I like before then if this was such a groundbreaking moment for me? But mm. I remember watching that. And in terms of like my... Cause I, so I, I went to... I obviously have... Um, in terms of my blackness, like my dad is black and my siblings are also black, but I went to a boarding school in the countryside and my experience of seeing other people like me was quite limited to my family. And so I think that because of that, there was like a lot of assimilation to what I perceived like the most palatable version of myself was like clinging onto things that are associated with whiteness. And so I think that there was, it was actually quite um, groundbreaking for me when I watched that 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 visual um, that visual piece, her, her music video that was like an I think it was like an hour long, um, because it was an absolute celebration of blackness, and I think that that really uh, shifted something in me and shifted the way that I viewed myself. Um, Definitely. That's why representation is so important and why we need to celebrate it so much. And I think that leads so nicely onto the fact that it's actually Pride Month right now. And that's, for me, that month is mm. always about celebrating your identity and being who you are. And yeah. for you, what do you think have been some turning points in you establishing your own identity and also coming to terms with your identity too because I think we all have those moments where we come to terms with ourselves in certain ways what have been those moments for you would you say um I definitely think that it's so funny because I remember like um knowing I was queer for like my whole life <laughs> and um and I remember that in terms of like sexuality, that being something that I definitely grappled with, but at the point that I was just like speaking about it, there wasn't some big moment of me being like, guys, mm. I'm queer. Like it was just that I was queer and I was, you know, having attraction to people of all genders and that at some point I just happened to tell one person then two people and then three people and then four people and then kind of everyone knew. Um, but I do know that for my gender stuff, that was not the case. <laughs> um, it was a lot more difficult. And I think that, I don't know, it's hard to pinpoint why that is because I know that people have the same experience with all aspects of queerness. But I think that for me, um, there's such a societal 
um, society is so embedded in the construct of gender to the point that mm. like everything is gendered, you know, um, colors are gendered and words are gendered and names are gendered and things that you like, passions are gendered and books are gendered. And it's like, it's so hard to escape the prism of gender. And I know that for my experience, I grew up in a house where like my uncle and his husband lived with us for like eight years. And so I think that queerness in terms of sexuality, it wasn't as hard as, I think first I had to deconstruct something in myself in order to come out as non-binary because it wasn't mm. just about, well, I, I identify as this thing and I need other people to see me. It was that like in identifying as this thing, there are all these conflicting, confusing things of like, well, what, what about that thing that I like? Or what about this part? Or what about this? And what about this? And it was just grappling with so much. And on top of that, it was absolutely terrifying because I don't think mm. that I necessarily, not that there isn't representation out there, but I just didn't have access to that representation. Maybe I didn't look hard enough, but because of that, it wasn't like I was like, well, now I'm a part of this group of people. I didn't really... I couldn't see where the group of people were. So it was like I was kind of falling into nothingness and out of something that felt entirely wrong but also incredibly secure because it was it, it was all laid out for me within society, you know. And so I remember being in a car, driving home, I can't remember where I was driving from, I was in, I was in an Uber and I was just just going over and over and over this in my head and it was it was something I hadn't actually even vocalized to myself it wasn't like I was sitting there mm. like well I'm non-binary and I'm gonna how do I tell somebody it was just I'm feeling these feelings and I'm so confused and I'm absolutely terrified but I'm not sure that I can go on not living as the person that I am um mm. and I remember I called my best friend and it took me like half an hour to even get to the point because I was just crying. I was crying on the phone and then I kind of didn't want the Uber driver to hear me. So I was like trying to speak quietly and crying. And he was just like, babes, what is it? Like, tell me. And he had literally no idea what I was going to say. Um, and then he was just accepting. Like it was just so, it was suddenly so easy. It went from being the hardest thing in the world to suddenly being like, oh, that's it. it you're, you're, that's okay. You accept what I've just said. Um, mm. But then it was a long time after that before I began to be as open as I am now. I remember during COVID, um, I'm not. I think this was actually this was before the pronouns were available on Instagram. But I remember one day I was like, I'm gonna put they them in my bio, and it felt like such a big decision even though like mm. it's social media do you know what I mean like it shouldn't be this like it should be such a big decision but it is yes yes <laughs> exactly it felt like oh my gosh I'm coming out to the entire world and everyone's gonna mm. be like whoa even though probably people didn't even notice it but it felt like such um a big thing because it's, it's then like well now I can't go back now I can't hide again and now I can't just, um, now people are gonna see me for who I am and they might not accept me. I think that's the fear always, isn't it? Is that people will see who I am and that they will not accept that. 
and it's really mm. terrifying. I think, especially, I think, I don't know if this is the same for everyone, but I think for me, I, f I feel like I grew up maybe because of, of being black and because of being different, trying to figure out ways to be accepted and trying to kind of monopolize on the facets of my personality that were the most palatable and acceptable and lovable and fun and funny and just what everyone would think, oh my gosh, I'll have such a great time. And so I think that because of that, then just doing things for myself, where the risk is that everyone could be like, well, now we think you're a bit naff or like now we don't accept you or now we think we're, you're weird or whatever it is, is really scary. But I think that's, that's definitely a turning point for me because it's not just mm. about my gender identity. It's about considering myself and considering being myself before I consider pleasing other people. Um, mm. So yeah, that was quite big for me. That kind of tightrope between self-acceptance and societal acceptance is such a difficult mm. thing because you're constantly feeling like if you try to fit in society, you're not then being at one with yourself. And the real journey yeah. that everyone goes on and should go on is to accept themselves and have a sense of self-love for themselves, right? Like that's the totally. ultimate goal, isn't it? To have that positive relationship with yourself at odds with the way that society views you, judges you, has lazily misconceptions about certain parts of identity, right? Mm, totally. You've been so powerfully open and honest as well about being diagnosed with ADHD. And you've worked for several years to try and raise awareness and clarify misconceptions and lobby for policy changes as well. What has that journey been like for you to grapple with that and then also use it to a powerful benefit? Yeah, um, so I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 18, um, mm. which was like, oh my gosh, the most liberating and freeing thing, but also really terrifying and came at a really difficult time in my life because it was just as I was about to start drama school. Um, mm. And drama school was incredibly hard for me. Um, uh, one of the hardest points, I think, so far in my life. And it was also a time where I was trying different medications for ADHD and ones weren't working and giving me side effects that were really difficult and I think all of that stuff probably would was greatly exacerbated by the difficult environment that I was in at drama school. I think it, it, medication for ADHD is amazing, and I know you know people within my family and my friends and so many people who have found medication to be just the most amazing thing. But it was it was just at the time where I was in a really difficult time of my life and you know at drama school for sometimes 12 hours a day six days a week and then also trying this medication that was like mm. altering the way I felt and uh, making my heart race and all kinds of things um and so when I got out of drama school and I began to find my people funnily enough all of my best friends have ADHD but literally every single one of them um it's, I feel like I just 
ADHD people gravitate towards me, which is just a blessing. Um, but I think that I became super passionate about, um, my whole thing is that I really want to enable other people with ADHD to advocate for themselves. Because I think mm. that there's only so much that you can understand about ADHD from an outside perspective. But at the end of the day, every single person is unique. And the way that ADHD affects people is going to always be unique to the person. It will often also have to do with their other life experiences. It will have to do with if there's any comorbidity with any other um, learning disabilities or anything like that. Because then it, it doesn't matter whether you're interacting with people who do or don't understand ADHD. Because you have the tool belt to be like, oh, so I'm experiencing this because of this, this, this and this. You know? That's such a powerful place to get to in life where you can not only advocate for yourself, but also use your own experiences to empower you as well, right? Like to get yes. to that place is the ultimate goal. Do you feel like sitting here today, you feel the most in your power than you've done before at this stage in your life? Yeah, I actually feel like every, you know, when you feel like, oh. I've gone through a little growth spurt internally. Yes. I feel like for the, <laughs> I always get them like, oh, I've come into a kind of new place in myself. I feel like I've had like maybe five to 10 of those moments since 2020, like the big moments where you're like, whoa, I've mm. just kind of leveled up in understanding myself and developing the person that I am. Um, so yeah, definitely. I feel like I am the strongest I've been in myself. And I also think that so much of that comes from, um, I think the more compassion I can have for myself, the, the stronger I can be in myself. Because I think that like it's really hard when, when you try to stand up for yourself and it doesn't go as you planned. And I think that before, if that had happened, I would have completely spiralled firstly into a place of complete like subservience to the point that I'm not I'm not um, honouring myself or considering my own needs or feelings um, and also I would have, have kind of criticised myself um, into a place where do you know what I mean like our criticisms are always just like the worst voices that any like teacher or bully or person has ever said to us we'll just like kind of spin those phrases round in our head and I've definitely stopped doing that I've almost become like allergic to it like I won't be mean to myself sometimes I will accidentally and then I'll be like no don't do that but like for the most part <laughs> it feels like such a it feels like such an extreme thing to do to say to be angry at myself or to beat myself up over something that it's like you're literally growing we're all learning and you're growing and you you tried something and it didn't work and that's you're a normal human being um and so I think yeah that's also a part of standing strong in myself is the compassion that I have had for myself enables me to be a stronger person every time I love that line that you're basically allergic to being mean to yourself I think that everyone yes. should try and get that allergy in their lives because once you yes. have yeah. that allergy, let's call it the allergy, I love this. Mm -hmm. Once you have that allergy, it yes, does not allergy. matter what other people think about you. 
And then you can start just building your relationship with yourself on your own terms, in your own way, and you can shut out all the external criticism as well, right? Yes. And it also, like, now I feel like I'm I'm also really allergic to saying anything bad about my... It's about my body or about myself. I just can't do Mm. it. To the point now that, like... Some like my one of my mum's phrases. Sometimes she'll say something, and then she'll be like, "Oh, sorry, I'm so stupid." And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that about yourself. Don't call yourself stupid. That's you." I was like, "How? Firstly, you're saying something nasty about someone that I love, but how can you say?" I'm like, "But it's gonna go. It's gonna go into your brain, and then it's gonna like affect your brain, and then your brain will think you're stupid. And even if you're saying it in a casual way, don't say you're stupid. You know, I, I'm just so like." I don't want anyone to say anything bad about themselves. It just feels like it's like become such a colloquial thing, I think, that we forget. It has. You shouldn't do that, you know? Yeah, it's become a colloquial thing to basically bully yourself and also say it out loud to be like, oh my God, I was so stupid. Like belittle yourself in front of others to almost, I don't know why we do it to ourselves because what do we benefit from it? And also it gives other people permission to talk negatively about you too. So no one's winning in that situation. I remember when I, I did this therapy technique once, but like one of the basis, one of the base. One of the ba- what's the word? Basis is one of the bases. Bases. One of the bases. Ba- one of the bases. One of the bases. <laughs> one of the bases of this therapy is is about basically how the the cells in your body respond differently to like positive and negative. Um, mm. And there's this test you can do where you like hold your arm out and someone pushes on your arm, and when you say no, the pressure on your arm, your arm will go down. And when they apply the same pressure and you push back the same pressure and you say yes and they push, your arm will stay there. And it's this thing of like the cells in our body physically respond differently to positive and negative. And so I always think even if you're saying something in a kind of offhand or jokey way, I'm always just like, be careful because like your body might not know that or like there might be tiny parts of you Mm. that that's kind of putting down in a way that even you're not aware of but if you say it enough times then you're like internalizing it in some way and maybe I'm just overthinking it to just an, a, a crazy point but it does it is something that I'm definitely aware of in myself I love that literally every day is a school day that was like a little science experiment yes right there, babe <laughs> I know before you pop off we always ask everyone this question yes. at the end of the episode <laughs> and that is in the reign of your life what is the one rule you'll always live by I think the most valuable things in life are free. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it's so true. And if you take that rule and add it to what we were just saying about success and failure, it's so apt Mm. because you can get all the riches, you can get all the awards, you can get a really amazing job, but really the things you need to look after are your mental health, your mental well-being, and that is free. That is, that self-help, and that self-love relationship. And yes, friends and support and love and um, self-love and, yeah, self-acceptance and wholeness. Oh, my gosh. Wholeness is the most important thing. Yeah, we could all aspire to be that Atomic Kitten song whole again. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Exactly that. <laughs> The ultimate goal. 
Thank you so much for joining me for another amazing episode of Rain. I really hope you found something to take away from this episode. And if you have, let me know. You can always get me on socials at Josh Smith Hosts. I love to hear from you. And as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, subscribe, or follow wherever you get your podcast from. And more importantly, please share this with someone you think needs to hear it. Let's get those convos going and I'll see you next time. Hi babes, me again. Just wanted to tell you about something very exciting. I can't believe I'm about to tell you this, but I've written a book and it's called Great Chat. As you know, I love to chat, plot spoiler, and I love talking to people about their lives because as I always say, talking and listening is so powerful. The book is all about how you can master conversation and transform your life, just like it has for me. I've used my experience from all the amazing interviews I've been lucky enough to do, as well as a load of research to help you deal with everything from making new friends to embracing difficult discussions. Great chat should never be underestimated. It can truly improve your well-being, allow you to create the life you want, and bring the connections you are so deserving of, babes. You can pre-order Great Chat today in hardback, ebook, and audiobook, read by me, no less, and it's out on the 20th of June.